Very difficult teaching, very difficult teaching at the beginning of this week's Parsha. It's the one that Chazan Basia and Yoshi were singing about. Vayomer Hashem El Moshe. Chazan Basia, if you want to unmute for a second. God says to Moses, Bo El Paro, which means? Come, do not go. Right. The language of the Parsha of the Torah here is unclear and confusing. When you want to say go in Hebrew, you say lech, but instead what we say is come, which is bo. And what it seems to imply is that what God is saying to Moshe is approach, find me, come close to me. I am next to Pharaoh. How could we possibly understand this? What could that even mean? that Moses needs to approach in intimacy Pharaoh in order to find the presence of the Holy One? The whole point of the exodus from Egypt is to get as far away from there as possible. A difficult teaching out of the Zohar, out of the Kabbalah. And I want to try to explain. Now, as I try to explain, one of the things I want to acknowledge is that I have a problem. It's a problem that you know about. Chazan Basia is working on me as I have a storytelling compulsion and I'm sorry, I'm truly sorry. But the only way I can try to answer this is through a story. It's a true one, by the way, and not one that I normally tell, but one that I think is worth listening to. Do you know that at Gettysburg, before Lincoln got up to speak, the speaker before him spoke for two hours. Did you know that? This is what people did back in those days. You know, you couldn't binge watch succession. So public speaking for two hours was actually the norm. And the man, Edward Everett, spoke quite well. Contemporaneous accounts tell us that the people were wrapped listening to him. For two hours, he compared the Civil War to the fight for democracy in Athens and Greek, the story of Pericles and Thebes. And then he sat down. And then the president, Abraham Lincoln, got up and spoke 272 words. It took him less than two minutes. And then he sat down and changed history. Now the responses apparently in the papers to the president were divided along partisan lines. The Republican party of that time loved everything that he had to say. The Democratic part, the Democrats of that era thought it was insipid and House had all sorts of insults to add, but it was Everett who got the measure of the man and the words. He approached the president afterwards and said, I think in two hours, I managed to approach the central idea which you laid out in two minutes. What was Lincoln trying to do? Lincoln was at the time, not a beloved president, but everybody respected his ability with words, with stories, with folk aphorisms. He had a gift for words, by the way, the 272 words are actually written in gold on the side of the Lincoln Monument. If you go there, you can see them today. What was he trying to accomplish? Why did he have to come back to the largest cemetery in the United States? About 50,000 people died over the course of three days at Gettysburg in order to say the 272 words. What was he seeking to do? What I'd like to believe, what I think, is that he had an intuition that the only way to leave Gettysburg behind was actually first to return to it and there to perform a kind of a magic and alchemy 
that changed the story from the Battle of Gettysburg, when we refer to the word. So when people use Gettysburg now, they mostly mean the Gettysburg addressed. He went back to the site of the harm. He went back to the site of the difficulty, exactly where the break occurred. He went to that place of fracture and decided to perform his healing there. You know, they say that time heals all wounds, but they're wrong. What it means to be human is actually to have wounds that surpass time. You ever been in a fight with somebody and you go back to it again and again and again with you in your head? This is one of my favorite things to do in the shower, by the way, is to relitigate arguments that I've lost. You do it too. It's as true for you as an individual as it is for us as a people, as a species. The gift of our minds and our imaginations and our memories is in some ways they surpass time. So something could have happened 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago, 400 years ago, but we are built to relate to it as if it's happening, not just yesterday, but right now. We are awash in memory of all times. That is part of our humanity. And that's why so much of the past remains unresolved. Who cares if the Middle Passage started in the 1600s? Who cares if the Civil War was fought in the 1860s? Who cares about the failure of Reconstruction afterwards? Who cares if the era of civil rights as we know it was ended almost 100? What is, uh, I'm very bad at math. There's a reason I became a rabbi. What is this, 2022? Um, so it's more like 60 years ago. Who cares? Because in the mind, in the heart, they're still happening now. You can see the woundedness on the face. In fact, we could describe ourselves as a nation of walking wounded. And it brings me to this week's Torah portion, by the way, come, do not go. Because one of the things I've never been able to understand is that God makes Moses go back to Pharaoh again and again and again, 10 times. It's not just a story of 10 plagues. It's a story of 10 encounters, 10 approaches and rejections, approaches and denials, approaches and uh, the word in Hebrew is reeve, um, confrontations. 10 times Moshe needs to approach and is rebuffed each and every time. But without the 10, it doesn't seem to me that he could have left Pharaoh behind. He confronts Pharaoh again and again and again until it's all worked through. Sometimes the answer isn't to go, to run as far as possible, to leave the problem as far behind yourself. Sometimes the answer is to return and in returning to fight, and in fighting to resolve, and in resolving to move beyond. And that's why we don't speak about Moshe's 10 attempts to get the people out of Egypt. We speak of the Exodus. There is a kind of stickingness, a staying power, a willingness to pursue confrontation to its resolution. That's necessary in the most important things, the most important wounds, the biggest breaks and fractures in our world. This week is the anniversary of such a fracture. Do you remember that moment where you're like, it was like 9-11 for those of us who can remember 9-11 where the, somehow or another someone turned your attention to a TV or a website then, and you saw the cracks in the glass and the crowds pushing into the Capitol building the chaos and the feces being smeared on the walls and the vitriol and the gallows. 
And what has happened since, I think, is a concerted to effort for people to say, no, it didn't happen, and no, it doesn't matter. Uh, it was a riot. Uh, people weren't doing what you think they were doing. And in fact, I recently heard a governor of a state of the United States say that some people are obsessed with January 6th to the detriment of our nation's health. Count me amongst the obsessed. Because at the end of the day, what I feel in my bones is that that was the kind of rupture that has to be returned to and resolved before we can move on beyond it. We have to go back to January 6th again and again and again until some kind of new healing is found, until some kind of new magic is made. Because many of us sit here afraid for the future, worried about what 20, not 2022, but what 2024 will bring. And the years afterwards, there are those of us who work in justice, in law, in politics, and there are those of us who just read the news. We are held prisoner to the events of the, that past until we find a way to a new future. That's what Moshe did. He found the way out. That's what Lincoln did. He found the new words. What will you do? Who will it be who finds a new kind of vision? I'll tell you one thing. Ultimately, I think the thing that we have to discard is somehow or another the idea that what's happened is that we've begun from we the people to me the people. There is a rampant individualism in this country that allows people to arrogate to themselves the privilege of harming their neighbors in order to safeguard their own ideals. And thus we've gone from a people who were deeply tied together onto the we into a place in which it seems like people are always arguing for the me. Who are you to abrogate my rights, my freedom to do X, my ability to bear Y? I'm not here to dictate your politics to you. What I am here to do is to say that even in the Amidah that we just prayed, the most personal Jewish prayer there is, you still prayed in the we and not the me. We are so deeply bound up with one another that all our protesting to the contrary means nothing. I am connected to you and I care about you. And I know that you in this room care about me because this is a special spiritual community, but that bondedness expends beyond the boundaries of this Zoom room. We are in this together as a nation, as a world, even if we wish we weren't. And so we have to go back to the insurrection at the Capitol again and again and again, to the fracturing, to the breaking, to the loss of life, the violation of our ideals until we find a healing, a setting of the bone, a mending of the break. It's not the time to turn away from what happened last year. It's the time to dig into it, however long it takes. That's the lesson of this week's Parsha. Bo El Paro, come close. The only way out is through. Shabbat Shalom.